We are continuing our series today on truth and knowing, and today's sermon is on becoming comfortable with the truth. Uh, we've talked a lot about discerning the truth. Um, how do we become comfortable with the truth once we know it? Our scripture reader for today is Tabitha Davis. She will be reading from 1 John 1, 5 through 9. is from 1 John 1, 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we, do, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth that it offers us in Jesus and in the gospel. Uh, we're thankful especially for grace so that you being light um, and in you there is no darkness at all, uh, that because of grace, because of Jesus, uh, we can still be with you. Father, I pray that you would comfort us, um, that you would encourage us and challenge us this morning. Uh, speak to us wherever we're at. Uh, spirit, uh, move here today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so, as I said, our church has been in a sermon series called Verily on courageous knowing and living, and we're about six weeks in, and it's been uh, quite a journey for me. When we started, I kind of thought I knew where we were going, but most weeks I like start with one idea and passage, and by the end of the week it's a different uh, passage, different idea. Um, we began our investigation not in the beginning of Scripture, but in the middle of the story with Jesus standing before Pilate about to be crucified. And Pilate asks two questions. What is truth and where are you from? Jesus is the truth sent from God and not just Jesus, but King Jesus standing ready to be crucified for his people whom he loves. That is the truth. All truth before Jesus points ahead to Christ, and all truth since Jesus points back to him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his eternal being, his incarnate life, his death, resurrection, and forever reign. This is the center of all truth and knowledge. Uh, Romans eleven thirty six is right when it says, From him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. All truth is tied to Jesus, who is the truth. And this means that all truth is ultimately personal. Uh, we know truth like we know persons. Uh, truth is not to be used, but loved. Uh, truth is meant to be welcomed with hospitality. It's meant to be honored. Truth is meant to be conversed with. Uh, truth is meant to be befriended. And supreme truth, divine truth, is meant to be surrendered to. Uh, in 2021, a couple years back, uh, the author Paul Kingsnorth uh, a um, British author, he was describing his own conversion. 
uh, in First Things, and he appealed to the conversion of another uh, another uh, Irishman, an Irish philosopher named John Moriarty, and and he converted from atheism back to the Catholicism of his youth. And he had tried, he'd moved to the States for a while and tried out uh, postmodern secular academia for years. He was in this period of disillusionment and searching. He, mo he moved back to Ireland, but still felt uh, a loss and was just unsure, um, really unsettled personally in, um, around his beliefs. And his conversion actually came suddenly with a mystical vision while walking in the mountains. And Kingsnorth is describing this. Uh, and he says, in an instant, he wrote, I was ruined. He seemed to see into a great abyss, this was the vision, in which all of his stories were dust. I had been let through not to a heaven, but to a void that was starless and fatherless. For years, he wrote, he had been engaged in a genuine search for the truth, genuine search, not merely a speakable truth, but a truth I would surrender to. And now he realized with a terrible inevitability that there was only one story that could hold what he had seen, only one prayer that was big enough. He had, he wrote, been shattered into seeing. Whether he liked it or not, he had become a Christian. Uh, John Moriarty was looking for a truth that was more than speakable, a truth he would surrender to. Such a powerful grace. One story that could hold it all, one prayer that was big enough. I wonder how that posture, that search, his search, might change our own truth-seeking. Um, how would it change our posture towards truth-sharing if we have uh, Moriarty's and King's North's in our life? How would we talk with them about the truth? Because facts are speakable. Uh, science is speakable. Politics is speakable. Philosophies, rationality, future plans uh, that we depend on are speakable. Uh, resumes, money, emotions, those are all speakable truths, and they're worth speaking a lot of times, but none of them are worth surrendering to. They're merely speakable. What is the truth that is worth surrendering to, the person worth surrendering to? None of these truths are big enough to hold all that we see in the world, all that we know about ourselves. Brute facts are brutal masters. In a machine age, which we live in, it's important as Christians that we push against the dissection of truth. Um, as I've been reflecting on this, and then we do a topical series every year, and last year it was on treasures and possessions. And um, it really is a similar theme where, as we reflected on money today, uh, capitalism is so effective because it reduces everything to numbers. But the problem is it doesn't, it doesn't then put the flesh back in. It reduces it to numbers, and then it doesn't put people back into it, right? Facts are the same way. Well, we can reduce everything to facts, and that allows us to accomplish a whole lot, but we have to do the work of putting personal personalism back in. We need to put people back in. It's important that we push against the dissection of truth, the reduction of truth to information, to ideological systems, to politics, to utilitarianism or effective altruism. The dissection of truth kills it. It takes reality apart, often to see how it can best be manipulated, how we can make it serve us. But the reality is, dead as facts are, we end up serving them, the dead serving the dead. It's a zombie culture. Uh, if we want truth that will set us free, it doesn't just need to be speakable, it needs to be alive. And Jesus is the only truth that is alive. And so here, Jesus is, 
standing naked before the judgment of Pilate, about to be crucified. And ironically, that harkens back to the beginning of the Bible, to the climax of creation. So Jesus is standing naked, and we remember that Adam and Eve once stood naked, right? Before the love of God, satisfied and happy, Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that phrase, naked and unashamed, it continues to be such a powerful phrase to me. Um, what was that like? The original goodness, the original innocence experienced by Adam and Eve. Uh, I am not good at keeping sermon series titles front and center. Other preachers are so good at was like they have a title and they just weave it in constantly and it's everywhere. I'm not very good at that. I get distracted by rabbit trails and curiosities and flourishes. Um, but when I chose the title for this series, Verily, I think in retrospect, Adam and Eve's experience being naked and unashamed is what I was trying to capture. Their peaceful, trusting, even proud confidence in the truth of God. And not just their confidence in God, but the resulting confidence that they had in themselves and in each other. I spoke about it before, but I just keep coming back to this scene because it's such a powerful illustration. And all of us have experience with nakedness, uh, both with others and alone in varying levels of exposure, right? With a spouse or family, sharing a hotel room with somebody in a locker room or a doctor's office. And there are moments of self-forgetfulness, but then you, you get snapped back pretty quickly. Like, right, anytime someone tries the locked bathroom door, you immediately sort of jolt and are very aware of your body and yourself. In the presence of others, we walk across a room differently with purpose and posture. Even when we're alone, I don't know about you, but you see yourself in the mirror and you subtly like shift your posture and your breathing because you even want to control how you see yourself, right? Imagine Adam and Eve without any of that, standing there naked and unashamed before God and each other like small children you want to bend over and pick something up, you're not going to curtsy your way to the floor, right? You're just going to do it. Uh, some of this shamelessness, like, returns uh, with age, mercifully. Um, as a teenager, you know, you're, like, mortified when you see a plumber bent over or something like that. You just, like, can't believe it. But now I'm, like, I don't know what point I, like, cross the boundary where I'm just, like, you do what you got to do, man, right? Like, ain't nobody got time to constantly, like, readjust oneself. You just got a job, do it. Um, Maggie and I were talking about, man, go to the Y, uh, Stonestown Y, in the locker room, the old people, shameless. All, I mean, it's just complete, so much skin. You, like, can't even understand. It's so crazy. Um, and that's, and it's a fine and, and beautiful thing. Um, naked and unashamed is a picture of living verily. It's what I want for myself. Uh, not just about my physical body, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, living and speaking the truth about God and ourselves without reservation, earnestly even, humbly but proudly, freely, shamelessly loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength because God loves me with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, this is the famous story of King David embarrassing his wife, dancing before the Ark of the Covenant in just a linen ephod. Uh, 2 Samuel 6 tells us how he threw aside the pomp and circumstance of his royal office. David danced before the Lord with all his might. What does that even mean? 
danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Then in verse 20, David returns to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. He didn't care. He was dancing before the Lord. What would that look like to be so comfortable with the truth that we shamelessly uncover ourselves? Like the Samaritan woman who runs back to the town that hates her so much and says enthusiastically, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Like, who's going to respond to that invitation, right? To come and see a man who, ha- who told me everything that I've ever done. This is what I want for myself and our church to be naked and unashamed to celebrate before the Lord. Adam and Eve were comfortable with the truth about themselves. They were comfortable before the gaze of others because God created them, he is smiling over them, and that alone is the fount of life. So they live truthfully, joyfully, non-anxious, unhurried but earnest, self-aware without being self-conscious. That is not, however, our typical relationship with the truth. Our culture has such an anxious relationship with the truth, especially the truth about ourselves. Uh, We're all familiar with the most common responses to fear. Uh, Fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. I actually just learned about the fourth one. Um, Fawn was new to me. It's basically avoiding danger by appeasing it, by fawning over it. And so in this case, it would be pretending to agree, uh, even though you don't, to avoid a blowback. And so you have fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. All those responses, uh, if you think about it for just a short minute, are evident around truth in our society, right? Culture-wide, we have a small percentage of fighters, uh, a few fleers, a lot of fawning, public fawning, but the masses in the middle are mostly frozen, where people don't know what to believe, and so they believe nothing. Uh, The Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, she wrote about the rise of Nazism and Stalinism after experiencing it herself. She says, in an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. And this is a dangerous dynamic. It creates a populace that gives up on the knowability of truth. And according to Aaron, it makes us ripe for being manipulated by propaganda. Uh, In a world where everything is possible and nothing is true, we're content to be deceived because it doesn't matter. And so she goes on, mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. Notice how totalitarianism works, not by giving us an alternative truth, but questioning all truth. And so it leaves us with nothing to do. And this is straight from the playbook of Satan, who is the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. 
And so now, under sin's totalitarian rule over our lives, where we question everything, we don't know what's true. Questioning God, the source of everything, leads to everything being in question. And if we're honest, we hide behind that. We often want it to stay that way because the real answers scare us. If God is truth, the God that we have universally shunned, naturally we're afraid of knowing the truth. After sin, truth no longer feels like a gift, does it? Meet the man who told me all I ever did. It doesn't sound like a fun experience to most of us. Instead of being evidence of God's goodness, truth becomes an indictment of our sinfulness. And in that way, sin is kind of like a one-way street where, as we've said before, sin is ultimately a denial of the truth of God. But then after sinning, whenever the truth of God reasserts itself, or even when we've been inspired to go search for the truth of God ourselves, like Moriarty there, we only were undone, we're shattered, we cringe because of what the truth of God says about us. And so often we just go on suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We deny what's obviously true about God because we don't want to see the obvious truth about ourselves. We're just like Adam and Eve, hiding from God, hiding from each other, hiding from our own bodies because they remind us of how far we have fallen short. And the truths we do accept, we pluck from the branch and we sew into clothing like fig trees to cover our nakedness. In that scenario, only the gospel of grace can restore our relationship with the truth, can make us friends with the truth again, turning poison into potion. It can turn truth from indictment into gift. It's A truth is not something to fight, but to befriend, a truth that we can safely surrender to. Only grace can accomplish that. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is light, and in him is no darkness all stand exposed before the Lord, before his blazing glory. How is this not terrifying? For the truth of God to be good again, the truth of our sin has to be dealt with. It couldn't be ignored. Lord knows we've tried to ignore it, but it always shows up again. It always comes out. And so our sin has to be faced head on. And Christ does that on the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, of the truth, the curse of the truth, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In the cross, in the death of Jesus, on that cursed tree, humanity's sin is paid for. And now we can walk in the light without being perfect. John 1.7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. By dying on the cross, we're given a new tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One that we're invited to take from, that's not forbidden from us, but we are are invited and commanded to take from. Because after Jesus, how do we know what goodness is? How do we know what evil is? The answer to both of those questions is found in the cross of Christ. 
Do you want to understand the wickedness of sin? Look to the cross. The murder of Jesus was the most morally evil event to have ever occurred in the history of the universe. The unjust execution of the only perfect human being to have ever lived, not just passively innocent like a child, but actively innocent, actively good. The human being who perfectly and totally embodied the powerful, gracious love of God because he was God, the son of God sent to save the world, to kill Jesus by people who should have known better is the height of wickedness. And yet it is also the most beautiful expression of God's goodness. How do we know evil? Look to the cross. How do you know good? Look to the cross. Do you want to know goodness? Read Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is love? John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's Thanksgiving, uh, people make much of Friendsgiving, uh, friends being one's chosen family. You heard that language all the time. How wild is it that Jesus chose us to be his family? Me, I am such a terrible friend. And yet he remains my friend. The self-sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of sinners is a shocking display of love, not to mention that we would be called friends. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what is truth, Pilate asks. This is truth. Christ crucified is truth. It's both the honest truth about us, man's sinfulness, and it's the honest truth about God's grace together. And the good news is that the truth of grace forever swallows the truth of sin. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in, the truth came in to increase the trespasses. The more, we, the more truth we know, the more sin is exposed. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It boggles the mind. Now, what does that have to do with living verily, with being naked and unashamed? It is God's grace for sinners that invites us back into being naked and unashamed. Christ's death on the cross makes truth safe again. We can be 100% honest about who we are, 
about not just what I look like, but who I am, about my body, my story, my soul. That's the logic of 1 John 1. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Does that mean that we have to be perfect? No, it means that we have to be honest. If we say we have no sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't need to pretend, but instead we confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so the gospel of grace first exposes us, it strips us naked of all pretense. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the naked truth about the world, about us, about me. And yet the good news of the gospel is how Christ died for me anyway, even with this. And so Paul cries out in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he immediately responds, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so those feelings of wretchedness he felt are gone. It's cleansed by the gift of Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Uh, Christians rightfully treasure the truth of Romans 8.1. It's hard to live into. It's hard to live as if there is no condemnation. Uh, that's why John 1 is there to remind us that speaking truthfully is better um, that there is already no condemnation for us in christ jesus it's good news to be free from the reach of shame so that nothing i have ever done am doing or will do will change my status as a child of god and so first john 3 says see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god and then verse 28 of chapter 2 now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So if you like remember that image of jolting in the bathroom, right? That's us shrinking in shame, the ways that we shrink. So when we abide in Christ, we have confidence and we won't shrink. Many of us, many times of the week, though, I hide from God. Like I hide from people. I carry myself differently in religious spaces, in church, in prayer before him. And the gospel is an invitation for me to be my honest self before the Lord and before you, being in the light as he is in the light. And so John is not describing a life of perfection, a life of perfect knowing, but a life of honest hope in the one who knows everything. In one sense, Adam wasn't naked in Genesis 2.25. He was fully clothed in the truth of God and in the goodness of God and in his love for him, in his belovedness. And so there was no thought that he needed a barrier of protection between him and God. And that's the life we are now called to, a life of friendship with the truth, being fully honest about myself, even my sin, because I know now I'm forgiven, cleansed, loved, not naked, but clothed in Christ's righteousness. The challenge is that we live in a world that can't see Christ's righteousness. It's a wavelength that they cannot see or hear. 
the natural person, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so when they see Christ crucified, when the Greeks and the Jews and all people see, all they see is shameful nakedness. But Christ crucified naked on the cross is not shameful. It's his glory. It's ours too. It's almost the reverse situation of the fable, the emperor has no clothes. You guys know that fable? Um, Hans Christian Andersen, two merchants offer a vain emperor the most magnificent and exclusive clothes in the world, and he pays them, and according to the story, uh, in the children's story, like they bring in all kinds of equipment, and they bring in their supplies, and they're like weaving, and people walk by, and they, they can't see anything. It doesn't look like anything is happening, but they just sort of go along with it. Uh, when they finish, they tell the emperor they're finished, and they dress him. They um, put it all on and, and make the train, and they send him off into the city to, to parade his wealth. And of course, the clothes are nothing. It's, it's a fake thing. He's walking naked through the, street, through the street. But the crowds are nervous, and they just sort of go along. They're fawning, right, in fear, until a child just blurts out that the emperor has no clothes. He's naked. Now, in one sense, we love this story. It's an apt description of the vanities of the world, right? Uh, it's the story of humanity's suppression of the truth, refusing to say what's obvious. Uh, preferring instead to weave these elaborate gowns out of invisible things, uh, which have no power to cover shame. Uh, there's a scholar of myth, Naomi Wood. She writes, perhaps the truth of the emperor's new clothes is not that the child's truth is mercifully free of adult corruption, but that it recognizes the terrifying possibility that whatever words we may use to clothe our fears, the fabric cannot protect us from them. Our culture loves this story, uh, because we live in a society that loves to point out people's shame uh, while ignoring our own. Like, we love to be the child who's bravely announcing uh, the shame of other people. Uh, to be the kid who sees through it all, to point and laugh so that they hurry back into hiding like the rest of us. Life after grace, though, it's almost the reverse of this fairy tale. Uh, apart from grace, the naked truth is frightening. Uh, and so there are salespeople everywhere ready to sell us elaborate clothing to cover our shame. Uh, in San Francisco, we're surrounded by the fanciest and most expensive clothing available by wealth and power, education, influence. But then Jesus comes and he just turns that truth on its head. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross naked, despising the shame, despising the shame. I love that phrase. He shamed shame. That's how he dealt with it. Jesus, like Adam in the garden, hanging there naked and unashamed, the emperor who has no clothes. And we're invited to follow him, to be vulnerable, to tell the naked truth, wearing only the righteousness of Christ. It's clothing which the world cannot see and does not recognize. And so people sometimes laugh and point but it's the only clothing which there is. And it's the only clothing that's comfortable. That where you can feel at ease, where you can be honest with God, honest with yourself, with each other, where we can walk in the light as he is in the light, confessing our sins, receiving forgiveness and cleansing. 
Or we can be King David, dancing mightily before the Lord, shaming the shameless. Oh, I'll be more contemptible than this. Um, I got a small taste of this freedom, uh, the blessing and the risk a few years back. It was probably like four or five years ago before COVID. And I had just gotten back into running after not running for a while. Um, And I had like lost some weight and people were like complimenting me. So I was like, people were telling me I looked good. Um, hey, you look great, stuff and stuff. It was fine. I was like feeling pretty good about myself. And so I was going to go run after work. Um, so like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the park. It was a beautiful day. And I go to my car, and I got my shoes, I got my shorts, no shirt. And suddenly I didn't feel so good about myself anymore where I was just like, am I, I like was just sort of shocked. Like, oh, no, like. I thought I looked good, but all the people who had complimented me had complimented me when I had a shirt on, you know, like they, they were complimenting the clothes, me, and I was just sort of wondering, like, what, what, what do I do, and I, it, I wasn't sure, like, man, if I go home, like, it's such a beautiful day, and you're just sort of asking, like, well, what do I care about, um, what do I value, do I value how people see me, do I value my health, and also do I just, like, I, I want to go on a run, so if you were in the park that day, um, you saw me like jiggling across, <laughs> across the park. And it was, it was really eye-opening to me to where like how, how what it feels like to be really exposed. Um, and it did not start a habit. I did not experience freedom. I, I wear, I haven't done it since, honestly. <laughs> I've like double checked uh, that I have a shirt on. Um, but what, um, is holding you back from following Jesus, where there are things that you are waiting for, that if you like look a certain way, that you get to a certain point. Um, what is keeping you from just running the race freely, um, following Jesus? What life are we missing out on? Life in Christ, life of peace, of uh, no condemnation, of rest, because we're not ready, because we don't have the right clothing, because we've forgotten things. Will we trust the gospel of grace? Will we shame the shamed and live open and honest? Will we speak the truth about ourselves? Will we receive the truth of God, both the hard truth, but also the grace which swallows forever all of that truth? Will we clothe ourselves in Christ's righteousness alone? Will we choose to be free, naked and unashamed, eternally safe under the loving, gracious gaze of God? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for Christ who bore our shame on the cross, who hung uh, naked on that cursed tree, both exposing the depth of our sins, like what what does sin lead to? It leads to the killing of life, but also exposing the depths of your love for us and how beautiful and wonderful that love is. Greater love has no one than this, that a friend, a person die for his friends. And so we... We have been loved and we are loved in that way. 
Father, help us to embrace the truth about ourselves, to be people who embrace the truth and live truthfully, uh, live peacefully before others, no matter what they say, content with the righteousness of Christ. Uh, would, would that uh, honor you? Uh, would it uh, honor each other? And would it uh, challenge the world um, to, to follow you too? We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.